Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt. Welcome to the interview with Hugh Hewitt, sponsored by andrewandtodd.com. Andrew and Todd are with Sierra Pacific Mortgage. They help you with all your real estate lending needs. If you're refinancing your home, if you're buying a new home, if you're a senior who wants a reverse mortgage, if you're a veteran who doesn't want to put any money down, whatever it is, if you're in the private real estate market for yourself, and maybe you want an investment property, try andrewandtodd.com or call 888-888-1172. Now on to the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Morning, glory, America, and happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day to you. It's Hugh Hewitt, and this is a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, a special edition of the Hillsdale Dialogues, in fact, all of which are available at HughForHillsdale.com, and it's with Dr. Larry Arn. The president of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. And so appropriate that he'd be joining me on July 4th. For the past 15 years of the Hugh Hewitt Show, I have aired an interview I did originally a decade and a half ago with Dr. Harry Jaffa. And that interview is is now not appropriate to re-air because not only have I moved to the morning and the timing is all off, But Dr. Jaffa has gone to his reward, and so we're going to take the best of those hours and spend time with his student, Dr. Larry Arndt, celebrating the 4th of July and Dr. Jaffa. And Dr. Arndt, would you tell people a little bit about Harry Jaffa and why it is appropriate on the 4th of July we begin the day that we celebrate our independence by celebrating those conversations with him about this subject? Uh, Professor Jaffa was a scholar, very great scholar of classical thought, especially Aristotle, and of America from the founding to Abraham Lincoln. He did a great act of recovery in regard to Lincoln and the founding. Uh, his biography, he was, uh, he was born in 1918. His middle name is Victor, because of the victory in World War I. Uh, uh, the centenary of his birth is in two years. He, um, he uh, was very smart. Uh, he went to Yale, studied literature, uh, and early among the Jews who were ever admitted to Yale. His father ran a, ran a saloon in, 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 uh, where in Manhattan, I think. Uh, Professor Jaffa was a very bright man. In, uh, after uh, undergraduate school, he discovered at the New School for research, Social Research uh, a German escapee Jewish thinker, Leo Strauss. became the first student of Leo Strauss. Strauss was himself a revolutionary man because he was a Jew in Germany who had studied with Martin Heidegger, a very great thinker, who was also a Nazi. And Strauss had to run for his life effectively from his own teacher. And he thought, something's gone very wrong here with thinking. We should start over. And he went back to the classics. Jaffa, in uh, 1954, roughly, picked up a copy of the Lincoln-Douglas debates in a used bookstore. I didn't know anything about them. Started reading them in the store. Came back the next day to read some more. It was a big decision to buy a book. Bought it the next day, and he discovered 
in a few hours, this is what his mind was like, that this is like reading a Socratic dialogue. Uh, you and I have spent a lot of time on on uh, the Lincoln-Douglas debates and yes. on the Socratic dialogues, right? Yes. He saw the relationship, and he saw that the position of Stephen Douglas was really that justice just constitutes the interest of who's ever strongest, and that Lincoln instead raised the question of the good or the right, and that gave rise to a very great book Christ, called Christ in the House Divided. Uh, 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 Professor Jeff published several books uh, one on Thomas Aquinas and Aristotle, about which he wrote his doctoral thesis, and several on uh, essays that are delightful. Churchill loved to read Shakespeare and Mark Twain and find the political meanings of those. Uh, I, I wish as much as anything about the past that the tapes of two courses on Shakespeare that I had with Professor Jaffa could be available, because they were just awesome. Well, he was awesome when he came to my studio a decade and a half ago, at that time already in his 80s, and uh, quite a remarkable intellect. Let's play the first of the many cuts we have, Harry Jaffa, in the studio all those years ago, talking about the significance of the Declaration of Independence that we celebrate today. Cut number one. I would say that the two uh, greatest events for human history in the history of the world was the enunciation of the unity of God on Mount Sinai, and the uh, Declaration of the Unity of the Human Race in Philadelphia. The Declaration of the Unanimity of the Human Race. What do you mean by that? Well, the proposition that all men are created equal indicates that the human fam- that there is a human family uh, and all races and nations of mankind are part of that family, and that they are all the children of one God uh, and the the political character of the uh, human race as such is shown by the Declaration. The, the American people, in declaring their independence, did something which was unique in human history. In the first place, no political system or regime ever had a beginning in which the principles of government were announced as the basis for this particular regime. But it was also the case that, that the, that the uh, rights upon which they based their authority were rights which they, they themselves declared that they shared with all men everywhere. Dr. Arne, uh, we were going to break with Dr. Jaffa there, but, but Sinai and Philadelphia, that has always shocked people even 15 years after I first played it. Yeah. Well, he uh, he had this amazing elevator. First of all, it's just marvelous to hear his voice. <laughs> you know, I'd, I knew that man for 40 years, more than that. And uh, I just uh, had, I never failed to learn in talking with him, even when he was ordering me about, <laughs> which he always did. Um, yeah, he had this comprehensive and de- detailed view, but detailed really only about the most important things. And so he saw that it changed religion from the, from the ancient religions, of which we have record, when the idea was that there was one God for every man. He loved to read the passage from to, in the promise to Abraham, uh, you will, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and this will be a blessing to all the nations on the earth. 
And that's a new thing. That's something different. And that means, it means, by the way, in potential, the promise of peace is greater because of that. If we conceive each other as children of a common father. And Professor Jaffa could just ring the changes on that. And he also connected it then to Philadelphia and one people. And also to Athens, see, because what is Socrates' question always? But what is the right thing to do in principle? What is the truth of this without qualification? In other words, one moral code and philosophic understanding implied for all people. Hard to get, but implied. And Professor Jaffa thought that the Declaration of Independence was an expression of the coming together of those two things. And, and he thought that uh, we become a unique people making a unique contribution to the world by adopting those principles. And they, they become our principles, and we are a particular people, but we stand for principles that mean well to all. And to, 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 to hear him explain all that, you know, and the great philosophic text in which he found those things, and the, he, he was himself amazed when he read the systematic way in which Abraham Lincoln understood those things. Also, the system, he discovered this, too, also the systematic way in which Winston Churchill understood these things. I did not know that Jaffa studied Churchill. Oh, yeah. I had a course with him on Churchill. And uh, I, uh, I guess I am the chief one of his students who turned to Churchill. But there wasn't any reason. We used to press Churchill. Who's greater, Plato or Aristotle? Who's greater, Churchill or Lincoln? We just love to ask questions like that. And he had a common thing he would say about it. He would say, if you look up into the high mountains, their tops shrouded in clouds, you can't tell which is higher. But that doesn't mean you can't tell the difference between a mountain and a molehill. <laughs> <laughs> That's very well said. Well, it is wonderful on this 4th of July, America, that I'm joined by Dr. Arne, student of Harry Jaffa. If you're just tuning in, it's early on the 4th of July. We're going to spend this hour and next recalling an interview that I aired repeatedly for 15 years in my old afternoon slot with Dr. Harry Jaffa about the Declaration of Independence, about Lincoln, and about the understanding of why it matters even to this day. So don't go anywhere. Instead, begin your celebration by focusing on the first principles of the Declaration, July 4th, 1776, uh, penned by Thomas Jefferson in concert with who, Dr. Arndt? Uh, the Declaration? Uh, yes. John Adams. Uh, and Ben Franklin, correct? And ben Franklin, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, But they... They backed off of Jefferson's eloquence. If I recall this correctly, they were in the room, but they demurred. Well, Adams, Adams was an extremely important man in the founding. That, that series, uh, also an HBO series, the book, John Adams by David McCullough, is awesome, and it was made into a TV series on HBO. Adams is the man who maneuvered Jefferson into writing that thing. So we owe we owe Adams a debt and Franklin a debt and mostly Jefferson, as well as Dr. Jaffa. Don't go anywhere on this 4th of July. Celebrate the right way by starting by reflecting upon what it is we're celebrating. It is the Hugh Hewitt Show.
Happy 4th of July, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. And welcome to our listeners across the Fruited Plain from east to west, from AM 1260 in Washington, D.C., AM 1260 in Boston, where a lot of the revolution began. Of course, WNTP in Philadelphia, where it was really taken to paper. All the way to the West Coast, our brand new affiliate out there, KTRB 860 in San Francisco, all the way down to Los Angeles, where my guest, Dr. Arn, president of Hillsdale College now in Michigan, uh, was then the head of the Claremont Institute when I first met him, a student of Harry Jaffa. For 15 years, I devoted my 4th of July show to the replaying of an interview with Dr. Jaffa on those most important days in 1776. Dr. R, now that Dr. Jaffa has gone to his reward, agreed to join me and talk a little bit about those interviews. Let's play a little bit more of Dr. Harry Jaffa from years past talking about the miracle in Philadelphia. Cut number two. They were radical in that they grounded the authority of the people in the laws of nature and of nature's God. And the laws of nature are older than any human laws, since they result from the very being of the universe. So in that sense, they were very radical. But they were also radical in the sense that they represented something absolutely new in human experience. What was new in human experience was at the same time the oldest ground for, for, for morality and and constitutional government. Uh, in the literature of American history, uh, it's very common to, to emphasize the continuity between British constitutional development and the American Constitution, and that there was a great deal of continuity is certainly the case. But there was also great novelty. Uh, for example, the Constitution says that there shall never be any religious test for office. This was the first time in human history that there had been a government which was not based in one way or another upon a religious test. The British government was based upon a whole series of religious tests. You'll have to explain for audience what a religious test is, Professor. Well, a profession of faith which is authorized by the government itself. Now, Dr. Arn, did you notice how he moved effortlessly from Philadelphia to Philadelphia from 1776 to 1787? Oh, yeah. Well, he was, uh, the thing about, you should know about him. I mean, I've, I've known a lot of very learned people and work with them all the time. This man was very special. And, uh, and the discovery of these themes, you don't see it in these interviews because, first of all, you're doing a very good job with him, Hugh, but... Uh, in addition, so far he's not fighting anybody, but he was always fighting people, he, his friends, right? He was always taking on somebody and kicking the daylights at them for making a mistake. He loved the quote uh, from from whom? From uh, might have been from Pericles. Uh, Aristotle is accustomed to seek a fight. <laughs> so, so. He was like that. He was very aggressive, right? But when you studied with him, you also learned <laughs> that he only fought because of his loves. Doesn't his voice sound generous and high when you hear it? Yes. And and then think of the promise and the blessing of these things that he's discovering, right? To treat everybody the same, right? As long as, by the way, they will believe in and practice the principles of freedom and let others do the same. Uh, we learned on the Christmas card at Hillsdale College every year, we call it a Christmas card, but what we put on it is a quote from George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation in Newport, Rhode Island. 
and I learned of that from Professor Jaffa, of course, and he would say that accepting Israel, this is the first letter from any chief executive to some Jews addressing them as equal citizens. It is now no more that we speak of religious toleration as if it were by the indulgence of some that others enjoy their inherent natural rights. So in America, the test becomes not a religious test. You have a right to be free in your religion. The test is, do you subscribe to the, mor- to the laws of nature and of nature's God and the moral code that gives rise to it? And that is a, a perfect place to break. Don't go anywhere, America, on this 4th of July. Dr. Arn is staying with me this hour next, celebrating not only the Declaration of Independence in our framing, our Constitution, but Dr. Jaffa, the scholar who held forth in this period for the last 15 years on The Hugh Hewitt Show. Uh, we review it all. Stay with us on this 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. I'll be right back. Happy Fourth of July, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Wake up to the sound of freedom. And wake up to the sound of Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu, including free, absolutely free courses on the framing, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. All of our dialogues like this available at HughForHillsdale.com. Today is a special day, though. It's the first time in many a year, more than a decade, that I've devoted my Fourth of July program uh, to other than replaying my original interview with Dr. Harry Jaffa on the Declaration of Independence. Because Dr. Jaffa went to his reward this past year, and I went to the morning and to a different clock. So we have to rework it, and what a great person to rework it with, Dr. Arn, Dr. Jaffa's student. In the course of that interview, Dr. Arn, many years ago, I, since Dr. Jaffa was such a renowned teacher, and it was actually the first time I met him, I asked him some student questions, including this one about how important is the declaration for people who haven't read it. Cut number three. The statement that all men are created equal that they have certain uh, unalienable rights that among these. Now, the declaration says among, so the enumeration that follows is not exhaustive. Uh, And we can say very easily that among the rights uh, with which we are endowed by our Creator are the rights to freedom of speech, the free exercise of religion, freedom of the press. These are all natural rights. Uh, in the Bill of Rights, which is appended to the first ten amendments, particularly the First Amendment, which says the Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or of the right of people peaceably to assemble and petition the government. These, these rights, which were never mentioned in the body of the Constitution, but they were not mentioned originally because they were assumed to be essential to the functioning of any free government. But they were encompassed in Jefferson's declaration among them. They certainly were. And so, Dr. Arnn, it's, 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 he just moves effortlessly between the two documents. He wants them to be intertwined. Mm-hmm. He had a big fight for many years with uh, a lot of the originalists among lawyers. And uh, they would say that there's only the text of the Constitution and that you can't add any theory to it. Robert Bork was a famous interlocutor in those arguments. And Professor Jaffa would say, okay, sure, but what do the words mean? 
you have to think that through, right? For example, the Constitution has three places where it, it, it protects slavery. Very significant that it doesn't mention the term slavery, which Madison, chief among the authors of the Constitution, said was significant, that they didn't put that in there because they didn't want that word in there. They didn't want the Constitution to be read as meaning slavery, even if it had to compromise with it. So Professor Jaffa made that point in this argument that he just made that the list of the rights are not the only rights, that all of the rights that, that, that can be understood to be appertaining to human nature, we can talk about what that means in a, in a minute, would also be included. And I remember Robert Burke once responded that there weren't any rights protected by the Constitution except the rights that are listed there. And uh, Professor Jaffa countered, what about the Ninth Amendment, which says that the listing of these rights doesn't mean there are not other rights. And Robert Bork, the great originalist, published in writing, well, that part of the Constitution is just an ink blot. An ink blot. Very so famous. So Professor Jaffa had him admitting that he didn't want to read all of the Constitution. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I remember from the last segment you talked about how he was best in argument. Uh, William F. Buckley said about Harry Jaffa, if you think Harry Jaffa is hard to argue with, try agreeing with him. Oh, yeah. uh, and that comes to mind in this exchange I had with him on the founder's intent, whether the declaration was really to be a governing document or was just inspiring rhetoric, cut number four. There's no question that these principles were, were the ones to which they gave their ultimate allegiance. Uh, apart from what we know were the compromises that came later, the compromises involving the institution of chattel slavery. And one of the, you might say, paradoxes, but also in a sense almost the genius of the American founding, is that it confronted the issue of slavery uh, by denouncing everything that could possibly justify slavery. At the same time, the people who made our government at the beginning were unable to change everything to fit the pattern of the principles. But people are so cynical today, Professor Jaffa, that whatever politicians say and elected officials is immediately discounted and run through the interpretive mill. And you're making the argument that they intended to be believed when they wrote this down. They were not merely setting the stage for armed no. rebellion. Uh, well, they were certainly setting the stage for rebellion. But not merely. Uh, well, remember, the declaration was issued after the war had been going on for a whole year. And uh, the year before, on July 6th, in other words, 365 days minus two before the declaration, there was a declaration for the causes of taking up arms. It's, uh, it's causes of justification. So they already had a statement of principles. Uh, which which preceded the declaration, which and which foreshadowed it. So you see, I was trying to agree with him there, Doctor Arnon. He wasn't having any of it. No, no. <laughs> he uh, he he had this in common with Margaret Thatcher, whom I was privileged to know. She wasn't a scholar like him, of course. But if you, uh, especially when she was in her energy before her age came, if you told a story about her, I would my my main mode with her when I would see her would be to praise her and tell her great stories about herself. She would often retell the stories because she could tell them better. 
That's exactly it. But 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 he makes his point that way. It's it's an interesting dialectical approach. Let's go to what I, I brought up Lincoln with him, and I want you to comment on this at length uh, after we hear it. This is Harry Jaffa on Lincoln's use and de- invocation of the Declaration in the Gettysburg Address. Cut number five. Let's begin with the first words: four score and seven years. Uh, one of the main issues between him and Douglas in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which continued on into 59 and 60 as well, was whether or not the, we exist as a nation by virtue of the Constitution. That's what Douglas said. Uh, only by virtue of the Constitution. Lincoln insisted, no, we, live, we exist as a nation in virtue of the Declaration of Independence. So four score and seven years is designed to, to reaffirm 1776. So that was, you might say, Lincoln's last word in the debate with Douglas. Oh, interesting. And so by declaring that, though, what is the import of such declaration? Well, in 1857, uh, the Supreme Court delivered a decision known as the the case of Dred Scott. Uh, That decision was one of the most uh, destructive acts by any person or group in all human history. The uh, chief justice, in his opinion, said that according to the founding fathers, Negroes, meaning free or slave, were so far inferior that they had no rights which white men were bound to respect. And as evidence for that statement, he said that the proposition that all men are created equal did not include Negroes. So so why did he go there, Dr. Arndt? Uh, so be more specific. Why, why invoke? I'm bringing up the declaration, and, and and he immediately goes to Dred Scott. Yeah. Well, the the point is that is you know that first of all there are two kinds of consequences of the Dred Scott decision. The first one is practical and political, and it's massive because the Republican Party, what it was founded to do, it was founded to uh, eliminate slavery by constitutional means. And so to preserve what uh, the, the partnership between what, Link, what Lincoln called the apples of gold in the pictures or frames of silver, the, the, the Declaration is the apple of gold and the Constitution is the frame in which it sits. Well, the Constitution didn't give the federal government power to eliminate slavery in the states. And so they thought about this device. In fact, I'm very proud that predecessors of mine helped think of this at Hillsdale College. They thought up, most of the land of the country is not yet organized as states. We will exclude slavery from that. And then slavery will be placed in the course of ultimate extinction. And the Dred Scott decision says that the, that the federal government doesn't have the power to do that, right? That means that it, it destroys the Republican Party if it stands, and it destroys any constitutional means to attack slavery. So that's that's massive. But it's not the most important thing about it, because, of course, it is a direct denial of the principle of the Declaration of Independence that the color of your skin could make you a lesser person. Right, right. And so it it, it undercuts both the free nature of the Union and also, and because it does the second thing, it undercuts the meaning of the nation, and that thing, see, and that's a court decision, right? Later in the Civil War, Lincoln would arrest a bunch of people in Maryland to stop them from fomenting 
secession in Maryland, and then the capital, Washington D.C., would have been surrounded because Virginia went, and and uh, uh, Roger Taney issued a habeas corpus order to present these people so he could let them go. And the guy went to the the marshals went to the White House, and uh, and uh, the White House told them they're in the fort. So the marshals went to the fort, and the general of the fort said, "Okay, good." How are you going to open these gates? <laughs> <laughs> I also asked Jaffa years ago, why did Lincoln even bring up the declaration in the debates with Stephen Douglas? Here's what he said. Cut number eight. Lincoln had to argue, as the whole anti-slavery coalition argued, that slavery itself was both impolitic and unjust. Uh, this was a very difficult thing to do because, uh, apart from the opinion in the North as well as in the South, was very unfavorable to the rights of Negroes. Uh, the only way in which the expansion of slavery could be prevented was by convincing a majority in the free states, who would constitute a majority in the Electoral College, that, that slavery was wrong. He had to do this without arguing for anything in behalf of Negro rights other than that they should not be slaves. Uh, Lincoln had to and, say repeatedly in 1858. And, and, and we went over this again and again. That's a very hard recipe to mix, and yet Lincoln accomplished it. Oh, yeah. See, that, that's right. So Douglas's argument was the country is founded on the white basis. Some of us don't like slavery. We don't have to have it. We can just make it up ourselves. But it's a morally neutral question. It's according to your preferences. And there was a very wide agreement, by the way, that people didn't want black people marrying white people, and people didn't want them leaving, living as equal citizens. How's Lincoln going to argue in that context? And the Declaration of Independence provides the way. It did. We'll come back. Dr. Larry Aaron is my guest. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues available at Hugh for Hillsdale.com and everything Hillsdale available at Hillsdale.edu. More Dr. Jaffa on the 4th of July when we return. Stay tuned. Happy Fourth of July, America. It's Hugh Hewitt celebrating with you on this Independence Day with a special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, a special Hillsdale Dialogue with Dr. Larry Arn, in which we recollect uh, his teacher and my guest, Dr. Harry Jaffa, a scholar of extraordinary importance in the American founding and around all of the United States and the world, who for 15 years held down this slot. But as I moved to the morning, we took the best of that interview and have Dr. Arn come on it. Dr. Arn, I have to play for you where we sparked it up perhaps the most with Dr. Jaffa all those many years ago when we talked about God and Jefferson. Cut number 13. I can't imagine that he, that he said it so many times without meaning it. And so is it really that the rights are in the nature of the people and the rights are in the nature of the creation put on earth? Well, when Locke said that we are all property of God, therefore we can't be the property of each other, you see. Uh, the two things are perfectly compatible. Sure. The authority of God is, is superior to the authority of man, but among human beings, there is no human being who has authority directly from God. One of the more pernicious arguments that is around nowadays, though, is that the, the people who were in Philadelphia on July 4, 1776, and those who eventually framed the Constitution, did not believe in God and did not intend to legislate for a God-centered world. Is that pernicious or is it, in fact, objective? It's pernicious. Why? Well, all authority... Human authority 
uh, political authority arises from the people. But who is the people? What do we mean by the people? We mean human beings who have been endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. It is the fact that human beings have been endowed by God with their rights that makes the people the source of authority. Uh, but can that authority of the people be exercised in any way? I mean, could, could the people establish a Nazi regime or a communist regime? No, because to do so would be inconsistent with the rights with which they have been endowed. Jefferson, on one occasion, spoke of uh, he was criticizing the Supreme Court for claiming the ultimate authority for interpreting the Constitution. He said the, the ultimate authority for the principles of the Constitution is the people en masse. They are independent of everything but moral law. In other words, the people is a people only insofar as it is a moral people incorporating the moral law. And it is, it is that incorporation of the moral law in the people themselves that makes that the people the source of the legitimate source of political authority. Now, Dr. Arndt, that was an elegant few steps. I asked him if non-belief was pernicious, and he ended up talking about moral authority, having confirmed that it was. But that was a very elegant dance away from the proposition. No, uh, he he. Uh, so let me add the caveat here that Professor Jaffa is a very great man, and I'm not entitled to speak for him. He has, of course, <laughs> okay. many students, and, and a lot of them are better than I. Uh, I just happen to be doing this because the old thing doesn't work anymore for you. But um, having said that, now let me be bold. When Professor Jaffa means speaks of God, he does mean a perfect being that you can understand through thinking about it, right? You can just look at the structure of the universe. You can see that every artifact you you, you make there's a bottle sitting on my table, right? That's a water bottle. The water bottle is for drinking. Drinking is for health. You see, there's an ascent. And, but when you get to health, you get to a thing that's good for its own sake, and yet it's not sufficient. What are the ultimate things? Look at the perfection of a dog. This is one of Prof uh, Professor Jaffa's favorite analogies. He used this all the time, metaphors. He, he would say, a dog is a, is a noble being, right? He liked dogs a lot. Uh, but a human being is more perfect than a dog. Now just think of the perfections in the human being and imagine them perfected and everything imperfect removed. You have a picture of God, and God, being perfect, would supply a moral standard. The reason that one must have respect for the great faith that, that, that uh, reinforce and elucidate the moral law is because they are speaking of that perfection in which we find by approaching our happiness in the practice of virtue. So Professor Jaffa was a Jew and had deep respect for that faith. He had deep respect for Christianity. He believed in the regime of, of religious freedom, but he believed that this moral law was known both in freedom, uh, sorry, in reason and in faith, and that's why we can have laws that don't have to be sectarian. And, and, and why we do not, why we must, in fact, have a free exercise clause, not merely uh, a, a religious test that is correct, but a free exercise clause. One of, one of uh, Professor Jaffa's discoveries, I believe, and favorite things to say was that uh, America is made both possible and necessary by the Christian revelation. And the reason that is, is that 
if, if you have a Jew, you have the Jewish law, and the Jewish law is uh, the Jewish uh, faith is that there's one God for every human being, and this God is a lawgiver, but He only gives the law to the Jews, poor chosen people. Christ is is uh, is one God for every man, but He gives no law. And that means that the law must be limited so everyone can worship worship Jesus if they please. But he doesn't give a law. And that is all in the Declaration, and we will explain more of that in Hour 2 of the special 4th of July edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. Happy Fourth of July, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on this Independence Day. I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, as we celebrate both the Fourth and Dr. Harry Jaffa, a great student of the Declaration of Independence on the Fourth of July, who for many years, uh, I replayed his interview uh, in the afternoon. But we've moved to the mornings, and Dr. Arn has moved to, uh, Dr. Jaffa has moved to his reward in the last year, and Dr. Arn, his student, agreed to spend a couple of hours grabbing some of the greatest hits of my conversation with Dr. Jaffa from more than a decade ago. And on the Declaration of Independence on this 4th of July. And Dr. Arn, I want to play for you. I asked him whether or not Lincoln and Jefferson actually meant it when they claimed that all men were created equal. Here's what he said, cut number nine. In the first place, you have to be clear as to in what respect they held that all men are created equal. They were equal in their rights, the rights with which they were endowed by their creator, rights which were theirs under the laws of nature and of nature's God. Now, Jefferson, for example, admitted that there were great inequalities among white men. Uh, he also thought that maybe Negroes as such were inferior in intellect or uh, in rational and various abilities, even in athletic ability, because he thought that they were inferior in both body and mind. He speculated that that might be true. But he said that has nothing to do with their rights. He said, Sir Isaac Newton may be my superior uh, in every human respect, but that does not give him any right to control my person or my property. But Jefferson owned slaves. That comes the retort, no matter. Yes. And so his speculation seemed to have trumped his ideology. Well, uh, let's put it this way. Jefferson, like all of us, was born into a world that he didn't make. Uh and uh, and to and and the two uh, have ideas, and Jefferson's ideas did more in the course of time to change the world than probably any man that ever lived. But to expect that him to have changed the world simply because he was born into it, or that he had these ideas, is simply to not understand the nature of human it's- experience. <laughs> That makes me laugh, even when I hear it, Larry Arn. In other words, you don't. Uh, do you know what you're saying, Hewitt? Yeah, yeah, yeah isn't that good? He, uh, he, he, it's the thing he loved to say in class. He would say the miracle of the founding is not that they committed this seeming contradiction, uh, uh, this contradiction, in fact, contradiction between announcing the equality of man and, and keeping their slaves. By the way, they did liberate slavery over most of the Union pretty soon. The miracle, he said, was that a bunch of slaveholders should articulate the principles of the Declaration of Independence on the explicit understanding often proclaimed that it condemned slavery. That's the miracle. 
That is a miracle. And I asked him about that and where it came from, because those framers were steeped in classical education. So I asked him what birthed that Declaration of Independence. Here's what he said. Cut number 10. Jefferson wrote a letter to Henry Lee in, I think, 1823, which is the most extensive exposition of what his intention was. He said it was not to find out any new ideas or invent anything new, but to present the common sense of the subject as it was found in letters, sermons, lectures, and the elementary books of public right, as, for example, Aristotle, Cicero, Locke, Sidney, etc. Aristotle, Cicero, Locke. Let's start with those three. What did Aristotle say that he bequeathed to the framers in Philadelphia? Well, I think that the idea of nature as the norm for human behavior, that clearly has its origins. What does nature as the norm mean? Well, when Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, what he meant by that, explained in part at least, is there was no difference between man and man, let's say any human being and any other human being, as there was between man and dog, for example, or man and God. Uh, The authority that a human being has over Horses or dogs or other animals comes from nature because of the difference in nature that makes man so superior to the inferior species that he has authority over them. There is no difference between human beings which makes one human being the master of that other human being because of a difference in nature. Then I went and asked him about, okay, that's Aristotle. Here's Cicero, and uh, I asked him what the Cicero impact was. Cut number 11. Aristotle did not have any... Uh, explicit concept of natural law, meaning a law which was transnational or international, which governed people with, uh, without respect to their membership in particular political societies. Cicero did. Cicero did in part because the Roman Republic had conquered the ancient world and had created a kind of international municipal law through the power of the Roman legions. And so the Stoics thought of of a law governing mankind independently of positive law. So, and Cicero's conception of of natural law was developed greatly in the Christian West by Thomas Aquinas. And then we went Uh, on to talk about Locke and cut number 12. This is what he said Locke contributed. In Aquinas and in Hooker, uh, the idea of uh, of, of, of authority proceeding... From, from kings or princes, uh, the idea that authority originated in the people and not in, in custom or, in, or in just in the objective truth of laws. I mean, the, the Decalogue, for example, the prohibition against murder, theft, adultery. The Ten Commandments, yeah. Well, not all Ten Commandments. Okay. Keep going. The first, the first, the first uh, tablet has to do with our relationship to God. The second one, our relationship to each other. Although the fifth commandment is ambiguous. Uh, but uh, these things were recognized as being intrinsic to human, uh, to, to the welfare of human beings. Uh, no human society can. Uh, so these were prohibitions recognized everywhere. But that all law had its origins in the authority of the people, that was something new which was not in any, for example, in any democratic idea before the American Revolution. 
So Cicero, Aristotle, Cicero, and Locke. And by the way, Dr. Ron, I know why you never got done with a book when you talked with Dr. Chopper. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but it, but, but it, it, was this new to him, or would the framers have said, yes, you're right, that's exactly what we were doing? Uh, well, we can only, you know, first of all, the framers were politicians, and they were statesmen. And so their arguments are you know, amazingly erudite, but also their practical political arguments. Professor Jaffa is a scholar. Uh, he's like a classical scholar in this way. He speaks in ordinary terms. He's been using a lot of technical terms, you know, when you hear him. He never did. Nope. Uh, he's very analytical. I mean, he is simply brilliant, you know. I mean, he's such a mastery. Um, but what I think is, what he says about them is built up out of their words. And that's a that's a, a very profound point. Uh, I studied with two main teachers, I guess you'd say, uh, Harry Jaffa and Martin Gilbert. And they are so very different. But I know where they, you know, where they came together. Uh, Martin Gilbert was a historian. He wrote narrative histories out of the documents. But he would always say, the past is real. And when the documents exist, there is no reason or license to speculate. You can read what they say. Uh, one of Professor Jaffa's favorite quotations, it's in both Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas, this alone is denied even to God to make what has been not to have been. And that states something about nature, right? One of the first things you have to teach people in education, the thing I learned more than any other from Professor Jaffa and his students and my fellow students of his, was that you have to approach things as if they are real and find out what they're like. And so this work that he's done on the American founding in Lincoln is, in my opinion, a great act of recovery and therefore not foreign to them at all. And and not be, being not foreign to them, meaning, I think, that they would have consented to his interpretation of their work. I agree with that. You know, I we have a we who study. You know, his we we anybody who studies great figure, in my opinion, if they do it uh, in the worthy way, will marvel at them. Sometimes I often say to myself, "How did Churchill know that?" I know how I knew it. You know, I had some great teachers, and I spent many years teaching and thinking about it and talking to people about it. And you forget that. Churchill is just like us in that regard. He's looking at the world and trying to make sense of it. And he just was particularly good at it. And the same is true of Lincoln, and the same is true of the founders. And so Jaffa understands them. One of his great, he gets this from Strauss, one of his great rules of procedure is, you must understand a thinker as he understood himself before you make any attempt to understand him better. We will be right back on this 4th of July talking about the Declaration of Independence, the men who wrote it and ratified it, the men who lived it, the men who studied it, Harry Jaffa in particular with Dr. Larian at Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale, available at hillsdale.edu. Go sign up for Imprimus, the speech digest. It's absolutely free. That will be your Declaration of Independence from conventional thinking if you go and do that during the break. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show.
Happy Fourth of July, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Celebrate the day the right way. Stay with me for the rest of this hour as Dr. Larry and Arn and I celebrate the Declaration by uh, going back over an interview I conducted years ago with Dr. Harry Jaffa, a scholar of the Declaration of Independence. In the last segment, Dr. Arn, president of Hillsdale College and all things Hillsdale available at hillsdale.edu, you mentioned Leo Strauss. Therefore, I'm going to go to Dr. Jaffa's teacher, Leo Strauss. I asked him about Leo Strauss in the course of that interview. Let me play those cuts and get your comment on a cut number 22. I've been sometimes asked, who are the greatest men? Who was the greatest man of the 20th century? And I sometimes uh, or often or will answer the greatest. The two greatest men were Winston Churchill and Leo Strauss. Winston Churchill known throughout the world. Leo Strauss known almost nowhere. But what Churchill was to Hitler, Leo Strauss was to Martin Heidegger the philosopher of National Socialism. And I add to this the fact that Churchill seems to have, his victory over Hitler seems to be complete. Uh, the Third Reich was destroyed, Hitler's committed suicide, and the world has seen at least something of freedom as it would not have had Hitler won the war. Uh, Strauss has not been victorious. He's been victorious over Heidegger in terms that he is he has provided the, the reasons, the philosophic understanding, which has within itself the power of defeating Heidegger's doctrines, you see. But Heidegger is enormously popular. And, uh, the reason that, that Scalia and Rehnquist believe these things are because that what Heidegger's influence, uh, or you might say pre-Heideggerian influence of, of Nietzsche and uh, uh, was the... I think of the name of the Carl uh, Max Faber. Uh, Larry, how compact and beautiful is that? Mm. Yeah, you see, Heidegger, um, Heidegger, you know, defends. He is a member of the Nazi Party and holds an office under the Nazi Party, an office you couldn't hold if you were not a member of the party. And now is emerging his diaries, which are called, what, the black books, because they were in some black oilskin cover. And come to find out, he was a more thoroughgoing defender of the program of the Nazis than was previously known. And what does he teach, really? He, well, first of all, it's very complicated. Heidegger is a modern philosopher, and that means there's a lot to penetrate that's new kind of jargon that makes a system. But Heidegger's teaching about being and about our understanding of the good of things is always contextual. And we have some agency in the making of the context. That's what historicism is about. And that led him to think, I mean, there's a passage that I read the other day, been, been translated into English lately from these diaries, and it's, he says something to the effect that it's too bad about the Jews, what has to happen to them, but someone has to suffer for the greatness of the German people to be realized. And that thing, when you get there, then you can do anything to anybody. Yep. And that's what Strauss rebelled against. And that's what Abraham Lincoln rebelled against. Remember, Lincoln, Lincoln one of uh, Lincoln's uh, condemnations of slavery, which were high and moral, and which did establish the rights of the blacks, even though he didn't fully draw that out all the time. His condemnation was, it's the old serpent, isn't it? You work, and I'll eat. And he also, I asked him about uh, Strauss and his City and Man book, cut number 23. Profound crisis. 
uh, it's shown on the campuses that there is no uh, what is the what is the ultimate human good as defined by philosophy professors on our campuses today. A very popular expression of this that is that the highest human good is the emancipation of the uninhibited self. Emancipation. Well, the greatest example of an, of an emancipated self that I can think of is Adolf Hitler. He did exactly what he wanted. Uh, every man would like to be a tyrant, you see. Uh, so the the idea that the emancipation of the uninhibited self is this is the human freedom is defined without any regard to any objective moral principles, whatever. This is the dominant opinion on our campuses today. This is the opinion that underlies what is called political correctness. And it is not the opinion in the Declaration of Independence, America. More on that when I return with Dr. Larry Arn on this 4th of July. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. This 4th of July, America. Happy 4th of July to you. I'm Hugh Hewitt. My guest is Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, where the Declaration of Independence is alive and well, and like the campuses that Dr. Harry Jaffa was talking about in the last segment. Dr. Jaffa passed away this past year. He was my guest in, in audio tape for many years on this program on the 4th of July, and I asked Dr. Arn to join me today to recall not only the Declaration, but also Dr. Jaffa's scholarship of it. Uh, when we went to break there, we were talking about the, the crisis on campuses, uh, Larry Arndt. It, it seems to me not coincidental that if you talk about the great document, you end up talking about the great men. And if you talk about the great men, you talk about the great evil men as well. It, it, it always comes up in the same conversation. Yeah. It, uh, um, these claims of right. So what you learn from the classics, and if you study them the way Professor Jaffa did, you learn it firmly, right? You can't forget it. Um, these claims of right infuse everything we do. Hitler himself was making moral arguments, right? His argument was not what Professor Jaffa said. His belief was that, but his argument was we can win greatness for all people by making the racially pure German people the masters of the earth. They can, they can overcome all the mediocrity in the world and be excellent, and everything else can live in relation to their excellence, right? Well, if you just listen to those things, never mind that they're crazy. Those are also claims about good, right? Hitler's claim was that his regime was good, and that distorted claim raises the question of the good and invites you to think about it. That's why it's so important for these totalitarian regimes to punish what people say. Uh, one of Churchill's great, you know, look at, these, look at these Islamic tyrannies, right? What are they like? What's it like there? If you raise an objection, they will hunt you to the ends of the earth. And so, so Churchill's point was, Think of the weakness of these men there in the Nazi regime, that they sit quivering that somebody will say something. Yeah. Yeah. I also asked him about Lincoln, because the 4th of July was, was celebrated by Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address, which is a November address, but it was about a battle fought on the 4th of July, Gettysburg. And I asked him about Lincoln and why he was different from other tyrants who often destroyed republics. This is what Dr. Jaffa said about that. Cut number 14. Lincoln was committed to 
the Constitution, uh, and he was committed to seeking political change only through constitutional means. The Constitution, the antebellum Constitution, meaning before the 13th Amendment, gave the federal government no authority over the domestic institutions of the individual states. And one plank in the Republican platform, which Lincoln repeated in his inaugural address, was that the preservation of the sovereignty of the states over their domestic institutions. This was essential to the perpetuity of our, of our political institutions. And the, now the abolitionists, or at least the extreme abolitionists, were ones who believed that any, politi- any power that could be summoned to destroy slavery was justified. They thought that any time Lincoln or any president had the power to intervene to destroy slavery in the states, he should use it. Lincoln rejected that. And, and in rejecting the Napoleonic approach, he was rejecting the, the approach that the abolitionists were recommending. Uh, Lincoln insisted that, that, that as president, uh, as a candidate for president and as president, he was seeking only such authority uh, as the, the Constitution conferred on the federal government. Now, and was minute, he? Now he, he was that all of that authority was concentrated on one question in the decade before the Civil War, and that was the question of the territories. And the only aim that the Republican Party had in 1860 in gaining the presidency was to prevent the extension of slavery into the territories. Now, here's the now it was a common belief, uh, and I think generally accepted, and I think can be accepted by us, that if slavery stopped expanding, it would have to contract. It could not stand still. So Lincoln was confident that if the extension of slavery could be finally stopped, that slavery, that a process would be initiated, which would take place within the individual states, just as, it, just as the individual states had abolished slavery north of the Mason-Dixon line after the, between the Revolution and the Constitution. Uh, so the process would be begun which would lead to the emancipation of the slaves in the slave states themselves. Now, Doctor, I have to ask you, um, do you think that Lincoln foresaw that the Civil War was inevitable after his election, even though he believed, as Dr. Jaffa just said, slavery would go extinct if limited to where it was intended to be limited by the Constitution? Do do you think he saw the dominoes falling? Well, uh, first of all, you have to isolate when they began to fall. Um, when Lincoln ran in 1858 against Douglas for the Senate, he he intended to destroy the position of Douglas, which was that each state should, could decide for itself about slavery. It didn't have any moral significance to the rest of the Union. And in fact, not really even any moral significance for the people who decided, however they decided. And that was a plan for peace by Douglas. Lincoln had an alternative plan for peace, and that is we will preserve the Constitution, leave it where it is, but not let it grow. I think in 1858, he thought that that, I think he thought that was right. So you had to do it that way, because if you don't proceed lawfully, then you're destroying the whole structure of law. So I thought he, I think he thought he had to do that. But in addition, I think he thought that would work. In other words, that that could be accepted. But then 1859 and 1860, and in the run-up to the campaign, 
in the election, and then especially after the election, then steps began to be taken for secession. And the and the uh, rhetoric in the South and the North, became, but especially in the South, became more violent. And so surely by, you know, I mean, I know Lincoln didn't make any speeches between the time of his nomination until he got on the train to go and be inaugurated. Didn't he didn't make any speeches in the campaign. And that was customary. Stephen Douglas sort of broke tradition and campaigned himself in that 1860 election all over the South. But Lincoln did write, uh, draft, uh, write in a couple of letters and draft a letter to President Buchanan to say, if you start giving up territory to these guys, I'm going to announce that I'm going to undo that when I take office. So he saw the war coming by then for sure. Right. And then I asked Dr. Jaffa about the second inaugural, which is appropriate on this 4th of July to reflect upon one of the great messages of American history, Lincoln's second inaugural. Here's what I asked him about the importance of that. Cut number 17. It would be impossible to exaggerate its importance. It was, I can't say that it was a greater speech than a Gettysburg address. I can't say that anything, but it certainly was Lincoln at the peak of his, of his, uh, Philosophic, theological, and political powers. Uh, it was most of all a uh, a statement that the Civil War was a punishment for the sin of slavery, and that North and South were equally uh, subject to to uh, punishment for that. Does it rebuke those who would make common cause with sin for a time in order to achieve a greater? And because if, in fact, it's a punishment, then that means the framing, the Constitution, was misconceived, doesn't it? No, uh, I think that the the Constitution certainly represented uh, a co- involved a compromise, but it involved a rational compromise because any alternative, if the Constitution had not had these compromises with slavery, it would not have been ratified. Had it not been ratified, another constitutional arrangement, which would have been much more favorable to slavery, would have taken place. So from that point of view, I would say the founders are not to be punished, but are not to be held accountable. But Lincoln quoted both the Old and the New Testament. Woe unto the world because of offenses. It must needs be that the offenses come, but woe unto that man by whom the offense cometh, see. And Lincoln afterwards said he thought that this reflected as much on him personally as upon anyone else. Uh, But he said, still we must say that the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Uh, In other words, the founding fathers said he himself did everything they could, but it was not enough. Uh, But the the scripture says that... uh, Woe unto the world by whom the offense cometh. That seems to be the, that's what the Bible teaches, and that seems to be the experience of mankind. Dr. Arn, do you agree with that assessment? Mm. Um, if you think like Lincoln, then you think this way. You think that the, the principles of the Declaration of Independence are universal, and they become embodied in a nation. The, the nation then has a mission to represent those principles. Then you think that the laws that are passed in the Constitution provides a structure 
for those principles to live and for a people to govern themselves under it. It's precious. The Constitution is imperfect, of course, but if you read uh, Madison in the run-up to the making of the Constitution in an essay he published called Vices of the Political System, we are encouraging vice among ourselves, and our union is going to come apart, and we lose the Declaration of Independence that way. But Professor Jaffa's point then following that is principles may be perfect. Human beings are not. Are not. (laughs) And so we will never have perfect laws. Lincoln says very famously and beautifully um, uh, in in a speech, and I'll recount that if I've got one minute. You do. Uh, July the 10th, 1858, closest thing to an actual 4th of July speech Lincoln ever gave. He, uh, it's the form, it's the most beautiful of all such speeches, in my opinion. And he starts out the way they always start out. My, what a great country this is, and look how wonderful it is. And look how big it's become, and look how proud we are of it. And what an achievement. And then he says, uh, and we think back on those days in the beginning when, uh, when, uh, the founders started it, and we think that they must have been iron men. They fought for their principles, he says. But then we see a problem, and that problem is that we are not blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the fathers who came before us. We come later. What makes us all the same, and that is the electric cord of the principles of human equality. It's there, and that is always to be striven for never to be perfectly attained. That's and we are, we are celebrating that electric cord today. Stay with me. One more segment with Dr. Larry Arn on this 4th of July. I hope you've enjoyed America this 4th of July conversation with Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu. I want to close our conversation, Dr. Arn, by playing for you from my old conversation with Dr. Jaffa about the Declaration of Independence, what he said about the meaning of the pursuit of happiness and his definition of virtue, and have you conclude by on, on reflecting on those two comments. First, cut number 24, Dr. Jaffa, on what it means to pursue happiness. The articulation of the meaning of the word happiness uh, for the Western tradition for more than 2,000 years has been that given by Aristotle in the, in the Nicomachean Ethics. <clears throat> And the word in Greek that is usually translated as eudaimonia, which means to have a good daimon. Uh, another word is, is makarios, which refers to wealth. Uh, but uh, the meaning that the word has for Aristotle is defined by Aristotle himself. It is that good for the sake of which all other good things are sought. Uh, happiness does not... Aristotle says consists in wealth because wealth is an instrument. Having wealth uh, is good for the things that you can do with the wealth. And the question is, what can you do with the wealth? Uh, Happiness is not good simply for the sake of honor. Why? Because honor depends upon the character of those who give the honor as well as, in other words, to be admired and honored by, by stupid or vicious men does not mean that the honor is worth anything. Uh, Stalin, for example, used to have these parades throughout the Soviet Union with praising him and with banners, and and, and he would look at the parades and, and think that, gee, what a great man am I. Of course, he ordered the, the parades himself. 
that when Churchill was honored by the by the Parliament, it was by a parliament Parliament which had already rejected him as its leader. But the, the tributes of free men, freely given for honorable deeds, mean something. But honor itself is a questionable good. Well, Aristotle's final conclusion is that, and this, of course, needs to be art- is articulated throughout the Ten Books of the Nicomachean Ethics, that, uh, that happiness is an, is an activity of virtue in a complete life. And so the pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of that. I also asked him to define virtue, cut number 25. Aristotle goes through the entire list of, uh, list of virtue, beginning with courage uh, and going on to temperance and then on to uh, magnanimity and then into justice and finally into happiness, uh, into friendship. Uh, <laughs> uh, virtue is an activity uh, in accordance with right reason with respect to the different occasions in which human beings make judgments of right and wrong in order to be able to act well. Uh, for example, courage is an activity of acting well in the presence of danger, and to neither be not to run forward into danger needlessly nor run away from it in a cowardly manner. The temperance is the right act, the, the mean between excess and, and definite deficiency with respect to the pleasures of taste and touch. So, Larry Art, is it right to end up talking about happiness and virtue on the 4th of July when we should be talking about freedom? Happiness occurs twice in the Declaration of Independence. It occurs first in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and then it, uh, it, it occurs when it says that uh, when people, they, if, if people are to throw off their government and choose new forms most likely to affect their safety and happiness, which Professor Jeff would always point out, is the alpha and omega of of Aristotle's politics. Now, why is happiness mentioned? The answer is, that is, after all, the goal of freedom. And to fail in happiness, to fail to practice the virtues, is to become the slave of the vices. And so people say sometimes the Declaration of Independence is all wrong because it doesn't name responsibilities as well as rights. Well, first of all, they should read the dang thing. But second of all, it's profoundly apparent in this treatment of happiness. What do we want? What do we want for our children? We want them to be free. Do we want them to be free to do whatever they please? We want them to live well. You know, at Hillsdale, we had commencement the other day. The best I've ever seen, Clarence Thomas, was the speaker this year. And what, what is the point of commencement? The only appropriate thing at commencement, apart from thank yous, is speeches about living well. And free people get a chance to do that. And that is the declaration, and that's what we celebrate today. Dr. Larry Arndt, thank you for going back. I hope it's been more than nostalgia for you to hear your old oh. professor it's a beautiful and great thing. I, I, you know, I love that man, loved him since the day I met him, even, as I say, when he was typically ordering me about. <laughs> so we share that in common. I remember that interview very well. Dr. Arn, happy 4th of July. Happy 4th of July to all of you. I hope you go and read the entire Declaration of Independence for yourself from start to finish, perhaps out loud in a group, and enjoy the rest of the day as we all do as free people any way we care. 
to celebrate the day. But you might begin it with the Declaration of Independence. Don't go anywhere, America. This great radio station will be with you throughout the entire 4th of July, bringing you the very best in entertainment on this, the very best of American days. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. You know, God done shed his grace on thee. Yes, he did. Heavy brotherhood from sea to shining sea. You know, I wish I had somebody to help me say this. That concludes today's episode of the interview with Hugh Hewitt. Thank you for listening. Make sure you come back and check out all the other podcasts on the Salem Podcast Network. And remember, to thank our sponsors, andrewandtodd.com. If you believe in long-form interviews like I do, then do your real estate transactions with Andrew Del Rey and Todd Avakian. I've known both men for a long time. andrewandtodd.com. Go there, answer a couple of questions. They'll tell you what's best to do with your house or call them at 888-888-1172. You'll be glad you did and you'll be glad that you listened to the next episode of The Interview.